Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So, how you doing? <laughs> is this up? Yeah. Pretty tricky start talking, huh? <clears throat> you feel yourself reverberating? <clears throat> Have you noticed papancha at work? <clears throat> Especially when you drop something into uh, a relatively still or clear mind, <clears throat> or just a relatively quiet mind, one little conversation just really has a reverberating effect. And then five or ten, whew, it's a lot to, to take in and a lot to understand and give space to. So um, I can just uh, imagine what kind of a space you're in because I know what that's like, breaking silence. And um, <clears throat> I thought I'd give a talk to follow up um, Sally's last night on Papancha, so you can deal with all of those thoughts going through and uh, base it on a, a discourse by the Buddha called the removal of distracting thoughts. <laughs> Sound good? Huh? <laughs> and also, besides looking at his suggested methods, uh, use it to point to a bigger issue as we leave the retreat. You might be thinking as I go through these, oh, why didn't they say this on the third day? But uh, sometimes you, you find your own way, and that's, that's the most empowering. This is uh, also from the Majima Nikaya. <clears throat> it's... Number 20, the Vitaka Santana Sutta, the removal of distracting thoughts. <clears throat> when a practitioner is pursuing the higher mind, from time to time, they should give attention to five things. What are these five? <clears throat> when a practitioner is giving attention to some thought, and owing to that thought, there arise, arises in him unwholesome mind states connected with desire, with hatred, with delusion. Then he should give attention to some other sign, some other kind of thought connected with what is wholesome. When he gives attention to some other sign connected with what is wholesome, then any unwholesome thoughts connected with desire, hatred, delusion are abandoned in him and subside. With the abandoning, the mind becomes steadied internally, quieted, brought to singleness, and concentrated. Just as a skilled carpenter or his apprentice might knock out, remove, and extract a coarse peg by means of a fine one, so too, when a practitioner gives attention 
to some other sign connected with what is wholesome, the mind becomes steadied internally, quieted, brought to singleness, and concentrated. So what does that mean? This is his first technique, and you must understand that this is when the mindfulness isn't strong enough. There's some other things to do. Obviously, the first approach, the, the prime strategy that he gives in the Satipatthana Sutta is to be mindful, to understand the nature of thought. But as you've probably noticed, sometimes that's easier said than done. So this is kind of bringing out the, uh, the artillery or the, uh, the reinforcements, the cavalry, when the mindfulness isn't strong enough. His first suggestion is to substitute a wholesome thought for an unwholesome thought. Now, what does that mean? Suppose you're having thoughts of anger and ill will. Well, the substitution for that is obviously metta. Not necessarily for the person that you're having the anger, that's kind of advanced metta, but you might make it easier on yourself and reflect on somebody who opens up your heart or doing metta for yourself, just so that you get that space, that spirit of kindness that can allow for some ease in the mind so that then you can go back and be wise and mindful with the anger and aversion that's there. And he gives that image of, of substituting, of putting out a coarse peg with, uh, with a refined peg, just knocking it out. <clears throat> if there's doubt in the mind, substituting that unwholesome thought, the classical one, is something that arouses faith. You might reflect on the Buddha or somebody inspiring to you, the Dalai Lama, or somebody who you know who uh, you are inspired by, or somebody who sees you and believes in you even when you have a hard time believing yourself. Someone who you respect who sees you, and you can gain confidence. Oh, they must see something in me. If there's a lot of desire or lust... The antidote, the reflection, is on impermanence. Just seeing, what is it that I'm so hooked on right now? What is this going to look like in six months? What is this car going to look like in two years? What is this glowing experience going to be like in a couple of days? Just a memory. And that starts to loosen the bond on uh, the craving in the mind. The classical suggestion for monks who are swept away by lust, as Guy read the other night, is sitting at a charnel ground and looking at a corpse in its various states of decay. That'll free the mind a little bit about the package that we're so lusting for. We don't have many charnel grounds around here, so you might just kind of, in your mind, 
topple ahead. This is a useful time to topple ahead to the future and reflect on what impermanence does to this, to the sweetness of this moment or the attachment that you're feeling right now. So that's the, the first of these techniques. And there's lots of different antidotes. Um, so antidote to um, laziness or dullness is a strong intention and resolution. And you can just get a sense for yourself what it is that can counteract whatever state that you find yourself in, substituting something that's wholesome for the unwholesome. But doesn't always work. So he had a second line of defense. If, while giving attention to some other thought connected with what is wholesome, there still arise unwholesome thoughts, then one should examine the danger in those thoughts. Thus, these thoughts are unwholesome. They result in suffering. When he examines the danger in those thoughts, then the unwholesome thoughts subside. Just as a man or a woman, young, youthful, and fond of ornaments, would be horrified, humiliated, and disgusted if the carcass of a snake or a dog or a human being were hung around his or her neck. Some pretty graphic images in this one, I should warn you. So too, when a practitioner examines the danger in those thoughts, the mind becomes quieted, concentrated. What does that mean? That is the colloquial expression that's in our vernacular a lot. Don't even go there. (laughs) Have you ever said that in a conversation? As you're starting to get into the hall mode and and then you or somebody else says, don't even go there. Because you know what it's going to be like if you start that train. We can do this in our meditation. Particularly if you find that you are besieged by a pattern of thought that comes back over and over again. It's like your, your finger got stuck on the play button and you keep on replaying it, you know? And there you are, having spent the last three hours obsessing, and there you see it again and again and again, you know? If you can name, if you can understand oh, it's that tape loop, then before it comes, sometimes you can feel it coming from the distance, you know. Okay. And just name it. I remember on on one retreat, I, um, this is my uh, early years of practice, about 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago, and I had this VR, you know, the Vipassana romance, and this one, uh, this one yogi, who just just really opened my heart, you know, and but it was on a three month retreat and it just got more and more intense. Finally I just sat in my room, right? Because it was just too much. And there it was, you know, and I could I'd be sitting, I thought I'd be able to keep it at bay because I guarded the sense doors to some extent. 
<clears throat> and uh, I'd be sitting in, out, in, out, and then I could all of a sudden feel this wave coming over. Oh my God. You know. <laughs> and what I did actually in that particular retreat, I just really had a high intention and I just kept on notice, noting desire, 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 desire. Desire, desire, kept on. And actually, when I did it, it was like this whoo, wave would sweep over me. And then as I kept on noting it, if I'd stay with it in my clearer moments, it would come, be there for a while, and then go. But you have to have pretty strong mindfulness to hang out with that. And probably, if I wasn't in my room, it would have been harder. On a more recent retreat, where I noticed this and the, the mindfulness wasn't quite there. It was another one of these. It was about six weeks I was sitting. And I made the mistake before I came on the retreat of looking in the paper and noticing the football schedule for the fall. <laughs> and as some of you know, I'm a football fan, <clears throat> especially when my team was great. <clears throat> and it was great. <laughs> Not so now. Impermanence changes everything. <laughs> and in a way, it's a relief the addiction is gone. But in this particular retreat, and when I sometimes when I see something and I look at it and focus on it, 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 it kind of stays in there. And I knew on Sunday at 4 o'clock, my team was going to be in Atlanta. You know? And I, there's, a, there's a rhythm that my body goes through on, <laughs> in football season, <laughs> where by Thursday, I'm starting to feel <laughs> a little something. By Friday, it's coming on strong. Saturday, I'm buzzing. And Sunday at 4 o'clock, For three hours, my mind is going on imagining what the game was like, right? Well, this happened the first week, and then the second week, it was a similar kind of scenario, and I said, I don't want to spend six weeks thinking about football. So what I actually, what I did, I didn't know about the sutta at this time, but I found out my own way, and I just... When I saw the thoughts, particularly on Thursday, I started getting a little bit more vigilant. And I would just start catching, as it comes in, football thoughts. And I just frame it like that. Oh, football thoughts. You know, and you might frame relationships thoughts or work thought or whatever it is. And in framing that, I had a little bit of space so I could choose if I... Not if I wanted to go there, but I had some choice that I didn't have to go there. And it was, it was really, it was a great lesson. It was, it was actually, I was glad that I looked at the football schedule so I could see that that was workable. You might try that. Just notice the danger in the thoughts, get some space around it, name the thought, 
and then you can choose if you want to go there or not, sometimes. But not always, because sometimes that doesn't work, which led him to the third method. See, the Buddha recognized how easy it is to get caught. It wasn't like he said, okay, I figured it out. Come on, you guys, let's you know, get with the program. He saw it's so incredibly hard to train the mind and train the heart. The third, if while examining the danger in those thoughts, there still arise unwholesome thoughts connected with desire, hatred, delusion, then one should try to forget those thoughts and should not give attention to them. When one tries to forget them and not give them attention, they subside. Just as a person with good eyes who did not want to see forms that had come within range of sight would either shut their eyes or look away, so too when a practitioner tries to forget those thoughts and does not give attention to them, the mind becomes steady, quieted, and concentrated. This is sometimes called forgetfulness and inattention. Isn't it nice to know that the Buddha taught about forgetfulness and inattention? There's wise inattention. (laughs) And what this really means is turning your attention away from that stimulus that will start papancha toward something else. Now, this is a slightly different uh, permutation on the first one. On the first method, you're substituting something that's wholesome for something that's unwholesome. In this one, you're simply turning your attention away and noticing something else that you can put your attention on. For instance, if you're sitting here and have a strong pain in your body, if you stay with it too long, the mind gets very fatigued and withered and then contracted and then confused and then spun out in reaction and identification. Oh, my poor knee. Oh, my poor body or whatever your mind does. If instead, if it's a persistent kind of a sensation that's not going away, you've got a choice either to stay with it or to turn your attention elsewhere. If you're able to stay with it mindfully so you're not confused or identified, it's a very powerful practice. And you can actually learn, as I'm sure many of you have, to just settle in and rest and relax in that sensation and be quite focused. It can be an aid to concentration and find a place of balance right in the middle of that. But that's not always the case. Sometimes as I say, we get fatigued and contracted and fear comes in. In that case, even though the instructions are are generally given to stay with what's predominant, the wisest thing you can do is turn to something else and just let that be just in the background. You might turn to hearing, which creates a very spacious quality in the mind. 
or you might feel the breath, or you might do some body sweeping, any number of things. You might notice something in your, um, in your field that's going on that diverts the attention away from that. And then when you get some balance, you can come back and see it more mindfully, more wisely. So that's the third one. But even that doesn't always work. So on to number four. If while trying to forget those thoughts and not give them attention, there still arise unwholesome thoughts, then one should give attention to stilling the thought formation of those thoughts. When one gives attention to stilling the thought formations, they are, these other thoughts are abandoned and subside. Just as a man walking fast might consider, why am I walking fast? What if I walk slowly? And then he would walk slowly, he might consider, why am I walking slowly? What if I stand? And then he would stand and he might consider, why am I standing? What if I sit? And then he would sit and then might consider, why am I sitting? What if I lie down? And he would lie down. By doing so, he would substitute for each grosser posture one that was subtler. So too, when the practitioner gives attention to stilling the thought formation of those thoughts, the mind becomes steadied internally, quieted, and concentrated. What does that mean? Well, I've seen two interpretations of of this. One is as the um, um, simile shows, one can just create space by just relaxing, not struggling so much. And you've probably seen the value, the power, when you're getting tight and agitated in just taking some space. Maybe it's going for a walk in nature. Maybe it's having a cup of tea. Maybe it's just stopping trying so hard and just easing off. This is skillful means when the mind is not able to see clearly. This is a, from the Tibetan Gendon Rinpoche. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already here in relaxation and letting go. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you relax this grasping, space is here, open, inviting, and comfortable. It's not cheating to bring spaciousness to your practice. You don't get extra points by going in there and trying to slay a dragon. This is a quality of creating some ease within the practice. Now, another translation or another interpretation of this stilling the thought formations is going to the source or the cause of those thoughts. One way that we suggest in the instructions is if you find yourself caught in a persistent pattern of thinking, to drop one level and just feel the feeling, the emotion underneath. 
that's fueling those thoughts. And perhaps you've seen that when you go from the content, which doesn't change every time you play it, there it is the same way, and you react to it. If you can come down to the level of emotion and simply acknowledge that, oh, this is fear, oh, this is sadness, oh, this is whatever it is, anger, and connect with that, it's like you've scratched the itch to some extent, and the content itself starts to dissolve because you're connecting directly with the source of it. Now you want to be careful not to get too much into an analysis of what the source is of, of any particular thing and thinking your way through, but just to ease up and let yourself open up and see if you can feel underneath what's going on. On to the last. And I read this with some uh, caution. If while giving attention to stilling the thought formation of those thoughts, there still arise unwholesome thoughts connected with desire, hatred, and delusion, then with teeth clenched and tongue pressed against the roof of the mouth, one should beat down, constrain, and crush mind with mind. (laughs) When with teeth clenched and tongue pressed against the roof of the mouth, one beats down, constrains, and crushes mind with mind, then unwholesome thoughts are abandoned and subside, and with them comes concentration quieting, and singleness of mind. Just as a strong man might seize a weaker man by the head or shoulders and beat him down, constrain him, and crush him, so too with teeth clenched, etc., etc. What does that mean? (laughs) When I first read that, I said, come on, you've got to be joking. But when you think about it, There is a wise way to do this. There is a point, actually I think it was uh, Sally last night, when she just said at some point you say, just stop it. Like a parent would to a child, firmly, lovingly, because in in all my years of practice, I've never seen meeting something with hatred, just as the Buddha said, hatred does not cease by hatred. Hatred ceases by love alone. If you can have a very firm stance, sometimes that can work. But there's got to be some kindness in your uh, your heart and your attitude. Remember, the Buddha was a warrior. He was from the warrior caste, kshatriya. And so there's a lot of warrior-like images. And so however it is useful for you to take the advice, just have having a loving but firm no, enough. It kind of goes with the second one that says noticing the danger. This is when it comes a little bit closer and the football thoughts are already there. You say, okay, stop it, please. 
or stop it. Sometimes it can work. Sometimes it can't. Okay? All you can do at that point is whatever you can do to create some balance of mind. Now, what does that mean, this sutta? One thing it means, or I see from it, is that there's no one way to do this practice. Now, people come in with a great determination and a great sincerity to do it right. That's probably the most frequent question that's going on in people's minds when they come into interviews. Even if they don't say it out loud, it's, am I doing it right? Or how can I do it right? Have you seen that come into your own mind? There's no one right way to do it. This might be a source of discouragement if you're looking for the perfect formula, but it's actually a source of great relief because in that we find what the right way is. In that we need to be open enough to explore and see what is the wisest response in this moment. If you have a situation and you come to a teacher and you have some interaction and maybe some suggestions and you walk away saying, oh wow, I'm so glad I I have a teacher who knows just what to do, just knows what to tell me. Chances are, if you went to four other teachers or three other teachers, you might get different kind of take on it, or slightly different advice. Maybe not always. I mean, there are certainly some obvious things that we look for, but within any particular situation, there's many ways to go. Sometimes we, we talk, it seems like, um, you know, the old Talmudic scholars arguing, uh, not arguing, but looking at different ways of of interpreting the teachings and different takes on how one would work. And we get along really well. This is a great team, by the way. These are great people to work with. And I have tremendous respect for all of them. And our community, our Spirit Rock community, is a community of teachers that really is high caliber, high quality. But every teacher has their own slight take, a slightly different take on what they emphasize in the teachings, the way they've seen in their own practice what works for them, and you will get the same body of teachings but with a slightly different filter through each of us. Ajahn Chah, when he was asked Sometimes he would give some advice to somebody and then another person would ask the same situation, the same, the same uh, um, uh, problem, and he'd give different advice. And when he was asked, you seem to be contradicting yourself, what are you doing here? And he said, well, I look at, at where somebody is and they're walking on a path that I know very well 
and sometimes they're about to go over into a ditch on the left that I can see. And so I yell to them, go right, go right. And then another person, or maybe that same person at another time, is about to go over to a ditch on the right. And I'll say, go left, go left. So it's all about finding a balance and finding what is a wise response in the moment without having a particular recipe. If you look at uh, the book Living Dharma, what used to be called Living Buddhist Masters until most of them passed away, that uh, Jack wrote 12 different masters with their own style of Vipassana. It's a wonderful book. I, I recommend it highly because when you read that book, it's so clear that there's no one right way to do Vipassana practice. But every one of them is saying, not everyone, some have more spacious uh, takes on it, but many of them say, this is the real way to do it. And it's very freeing to see 12 different real ways. So with this, who do you turn to? Who can you trust? If some of you are old enough to remember that, that TV show, Who Do You Trust? Johnny Carson's old show. Sometimes I remember old commercials and old TV shows up here. Who do you trust? Guess who? Well, the thing is, it can be a little tricky when you think, oh, I should trust myself, but I can't trust myself. How do I know? I might be deceiving myself. I might be completely uh, in, uh, in confusion or delusion. How do I know what to trust? This is where we can turn our understanding from trusting ourself, yes, I've got to trust myself, to rather trusting in the awareness and not taking ownership of that awareness. Because there's something in us beyond ownership that is attuned to the truth. I remember when I went to, um, went to an interview and I had a real hard time trusting myself, you know. Trust, trust. What does that trust mean? Does it mean trusting in James? No. It's just listening quietly, listening deeply, and finding out what the truth is in this moment that your heart says to you. Ajahn uh, Sumedho has a a, a wonderful uh, name for this, calling our Buddha knowing. Trust in your Buddha knowing, your Buddha nature. You know, when you take refuge in the Buddha, on one level you're taking refuge in that being who discovered freedom 2,500 years ago. And in a more fundamental level, you're taking refuge in that capacity that you have to awaken. That's why the Buddha taught. He didn't teach just to show people 
what he had learned so he could be impressive. He taught because he saw so many people with but a little dust covering their eyes, covering their vision, and they too could see for themselves. If they hear the teachings and apply them and discover the truth for themselves inside. Not to think that the wisdom is outside. I mean, there is wisdom outside that reminds us. But when you hear something that's really wise, you know, you hear a Dharma talk that's touched you or inspired you, and you say, wow, what a great Dharma talk. You know, wow, that person is so wise you're actually missing a key point if you have that response. What happens is when you hear something that seems really wise, it's touching a place inside of you that says, yep, that's it, right on. It's like the wisdom is resonating with itself and awakening that enlightened heart. But here it is. It's not outside of yourself. Again, Ajahn Chah was asked um, when he seemed to not be particularly acting in an inspiring way or an enlightened way, you know, why are you sloppy sometimes? I think it was Jack that asked him that, you know, in his bold, brazen way, you know, well, you don't even seem like you're so enlightened sometimes. Just imagine Jack saying that to him. And Ajahn Chah laughed and he said, it's a good thing I don't fit your idea of what an enlightened person is. Otherwise, you'd be busy thinking that the Buddha is outside of yourself. And that's not where the Buddha is to be found. The Buddha's words... among his last words, therefore be a lamp unto yourself, be a refuge to yourself, betake to yourself no external refuge, hold fast to the truth as a lamp, hold fast to the truth as a refuge, look not for a refuge in anyone beside yourself. What an inspiring teaching. That's what has hooked me from the very beginning, that this is all up to ourselves. You know, when we do the chants each evening, I don't know if you've looked at all the the words uh, in the chant, there's one part where it says, Ehi pasiko, o panayiko, ehi pasiko, come and see for yourself. The Dharma is an open invitation for us each to discover the truth for ourselves. And from the Kalama Sutta, which I'm sure many of you know, which was actually read a bit here, you should decide not by what you've heard, not by following convention, not by assuming it is so, not by relying on the texts, not because of reasoning, not because of logic, not by thinking about explanations, not by acquiescing to the views that you prefer, not because it appears likely, and certainly not out of respect for a teacher. 
But when you would know, Kalamas, for yourselves that these things are unhealthy, these things when entered upon and undertaken incline towards harm and suffering, then, Kalamas, you should reject them. And when you know for yourselves that these things are healthy, these things when entered upon and undertaken incline towards welfare and happiness, then, Kalamas, having come to them, you should stay with them. When you know for yourself, that means you have to take a look and see. And when you are open to seeing anything and discovering anything, not by acquiescing to the views that you prefer, to your preconceptions, then that's when insight arises. In order to have an insight, in order to have an experience of, aha, ah, aha, wow, you can't be busy saying, oh, I think I know how it's going to be. Because if it turns out how, it's gonna, how you thought it would be, all you end up is just patting yourself on the back and saying, pretty clever, knew it all the time. But in order to have an experience of, oh, wow, oh, look at that, aha, you let go of your knowing mind. You let go of your thinking mind. You know, in the, in the Third Zen Patriarch, there's this great line that says, stop talking and thinking and there's nothing you'll not be able to know. If we can let go of our discursive analytical mind and just open up to something deeper, something wiser, something much more intuitive, then we can see that Buddha knowing and we can feel it and let it beautifully manifest through us. This is uh, Ajahn Sumedho. What is divinity? We may consider ourselves purely instinctual creatures because we have an animal body with the same instinctual nature as an animal. But there is also the divine. For reflection on divinity, we have beautiful selfless qualities that can manifest through this human form when there's no self, when you're not caught in ignorance and all that process of self-view ceases, then the divinity is obvious. Then kindness, compassion, joy, serenity of mind are not something that we have to get, but something that manifests through these forms. And he calls this the shining through of the divine. It's here all along. Sometimes it's hard to see that it's here because we get caught in our judgments about how we should be or how we wish we could be. If you incline the mind to tune into it and start trusting that it's there, there's a place in all of us that knows and that from time to time we know that we know. And if we can 
understand and experience when we know that we know that this is not a fluke, that this is the shining through of something deep and pure and good and wise. We have more and more trust in that. Michelangelo said when somebody lavished praise on him for his skill in creating beautiful masterpiece David, he brushed aside the compliment by saying, the man was already in the stone. I merely removed all the pieces of rock that kept him from being seen. What a wonderful way to relate to ourselves. There is a Buddha right inside there. We just have to not get confused by all the stuff that's in the way. Luminous is this mind, the Buddha says, brightly shining, but it is colored by attachments that visit it. The unlearned people do not really under this unlearned people do not really under, understand and so do, so do not cultivate this mind and heart. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, free of attachments that visit it. This the noble follower of the way really understands. So for them there is cultivation of this mind and heart. Free of attachments that visit it. It doesn't mean that the attachments stop visiting you. But to see their nature as empty, we have a chance to get in touch with that Buddha. So how can we get in touch with that natural state, wisdom, love? Just a few things that come to my mind as part of the practice. First is getting out of the way. And by that, I mean not taking ownership of all the attachments that come to visit. Being mindful. Okay? And if you're mindful, and if you are present for the fears and the confusions and the judgments, and don't judge them, they're simply conditions, habits of mind and heart that come through and keep on visiting us. And those moments that we're free, that we see, ah, this thought is as real as I make it or as empty as I let it be. There's freedom. In every moment that you're mindful, there is freedom. And as we are more able to understand the emptiness of those thoughts, we can start to listen more clearly to the different voices that come through in our mind. There are some thoughts, many thoughts, that might come through with a a jagged edge or a judgment or a contraction or a, a wanting. And then there are other thoughts that we all have and are in touch with from time to time that simply say, this feels right. This doesn't feel so right. That aren't coming through with a harsh tone, that aren't coming through with judgment, that don't have a contraction, that have an inner strength and ease and support. 
the more we can give space around all the thoughts as we're practicing, the more we can choose which thoughts we want to give energy to and empower. Until we give space around it, we are tossed and turned and reacting to most thoughts that come through. But when you can get a little bit of space and listen, one, one method that I, I use, have used for many years, is just to listen to the tone, if I can remember, listen to the tone that the voice is coming through. And if there's a, a jaggedness, a contraction, an agitation to it, chances are this is a thought that's just coming out of fear or confusion or grasping. And you can notice that thought come and go. And if you can listen to the tone that comes through from a strong and wise and kind place, a deep, compassionate place, you can start to trust, oh, this is something to be followed. This is something to energize. And then when you can get more and more in touch with that wholesomeness as it comes through, being present for it is a way to increase the wholesomeness, as Sally mentioned the other night on the Right Efforts talk. Increasing the wholesome states that have arisen, the best way to do that is to feel their wholesomeness, is to acknowledge and feel the goodness of a kind thought or a wise thought. There's a beautiful line in the, uh, um, also in the Majjhima, in, uh, in the sutta called Equipment of Mind, the Buddha says, thinking I'm generous, one of the equipments of mind, thinking I'm generous, the practitioner takes delight. The heart is gladdened. One gains inspiration in the Dhamma as one thinks, oh, I'm generous. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean you go around saying, ah, I'm pretty generous? You know, hey, I hope everybody sees what kind of a generous person I am. Uh-uh. That's conceit. That's identification. But rather, if you feel the wholesomeness of that impulse of generosity, and don't take ownership of it, but just feel the goodness as it's moved through you, mmm, how good that feels, then you're giving life to that deeper place, that Buddha knowing. And then... The next step, which you get a chance to now that the retreat is coming to a close, in your relational life to express those impulses, to express when there's a kind thought that comes through. Why keep it to yourself? Why not let somebody else feel it too? To express and take action in those impulses when you're moved to act or relieve suffering. It's simply a practice of increasing the wholesome states that have arisen by not just keeping them in the confines of your mind, but having the deeper karmic consequence of manifesting them in words and speech. So to trust more and more, to learn to listen, and to express when those impulses arise and come through. Sometimes we have to make decisions, and that's another issue 
sometimes when people leave retreat, it's, it's a big one. How do I know what to do next? Sometimes it's, uh, which way shall I go to the supermarket, you know, as you're leaving the retreat and you're a little bit uh, kind of spaced out? Well, decisions can be a very rich, fertile ground. And again, we can see when we're caught in confusion and fear, or when we can just relax and listen to our intuitive wisdom. If there's not a timeline on the decision, what I have found helpful is to just sit with it and sit with it and listen rather than figure out. And if you hang out with it enough, there's a place that your heart seems to land on that seems right at this time. It doesn't mean that it's going to be clear sailing from that point on, but it's the best you can do because that's all the information that you have in that moment. I've mentioned this. Some of you have heard this. I remember I was at a crossroads in, in my life and I had to make a decision, and I couldn't just wait for it to, to come through. And I, I, this was uh, back in 1977, and I, I was either going to stay in New York as a school teacher, which I'd done for quite a few years, go up to the center in Massachusetts and uh, work on staff there, travel to Asia, or move out to California. And they all seemed like very decent options but I didn't want to make the wrong decision. So I went to this guy, this psychic, very wise man, Reverend Miller. I saw him before, $5 for a reading. He was not in it for the money. Very wise. And I said, I've got all these different options I don't know what to do. I really feel like I am at the key crossroads in my life. What should I do? And he believed in spirit guides and guardian angels and all kinds of stuff like that, you know, and I thought that maybe some of them would give him a clue of what I should do, you know. But instead he said, well, I won't tell you what to do. I was discouraged. But I will tell you something. I'll tell you one thing. I got really excited. He said, it doesn't matter. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, what do you mean it doesn't matter? That's my life you're talking about. (laughs) And he said, you know, if if you have to make a decision, if you can't just wait for it to come naturally, and you've got to make a decision... All you can go by is the information you have right now and then take the first step. Because as long as you're frozen, paralyzed in indecision, the guardian angels and the spirit guides, they can't help you. That's how he thought of it. But if you take that first step and put yourself in motion and then the next step and then the next and the next, then the forces that be can help and guide you along and maneuver, and you can see for yourself where it's leading. And you might see, oh, well, 
no, okay, this is not, this is not the way. Okay, let's try this one. Or one thing opens up to another possibility and another and another. That's how life works, isn't it? Have you seen that in your life? All the decisions that you've made, will it be the right one? And it looked like it was an awful one, and then it, lear- it, it moved into the very next opportunity that you could have never dreamt would come open. So you don't have to figure it out. Isn't that wonderful? You're not writing the script. That's where the freedom comes in. All you need to do is put yourself in motion with as much information as you have and keep on listening to what your deepest truth and wisest heart can give you at that moment. (laughs) The right thing. (laughs) I went to Asia and then moved to California. The wisdom is inside of us. It's not just inside of us, we're being held by it as well. And it's not something you have to wait 20 lifetimes when you become an enlightened or semi-enlightened being. In this moment, there is that Buddha knowing that we can trust in. It takes courage to look deeply because when you take a look, the first things that you see are all the hindrances and confusion and fear and all that. But underneath all of that is the kingdom of God, as it said, is your true nature, is your Buddha knowing And when you get a glimpse of that, it's so compelling that you just want to keep hanging out there more and more and more. That's why you've come back again and again to these retreats, because there's a, a purity of heart that we touch that we just, we're like moths drawn to a flame. Yes, more and more and more. Trust that. Trust that, because it is the most wondrous thing that we can open up to and experience. So I close with these words from Shantideva on our last night together. As a blind person feels when they find a pearl in a dustbin so am I amazed by the miracle of awakening rising in my consciousness. It is the nectar of immortality that delivers us from death, the treasure that lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life the tree that gives shade to us when we roam about scorched by life, the bridge that takes us across the stormy river of life, the cool moon of compassion that calms our mind when it is agitated, 
the sun that dispels darkness, the butter made from the milk of kindness by churning it with the Dharma. It is a feast of joy to which all are invited. Let's sit for a moment. as a blind person feels when they find a pearl in a dustbin, so am I amazed by the miracle of awakening rising in my consciousness. for your attention. So we'll have a walking, let's say, uh, ring the bell in about uh, 35 minutes or so, and then we'll come back about 10 to 9 for sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.